Welcome to the Extra Spicy Podcast, people. I am Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. On this show, we talk about food and everything that surrounds it by speaking with people in the Bay Area and beyond who are writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. On this episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Hawa Hassan, the CEO of Bas Bas Foods and a cookbook author. I think if you're paying attention, you quickly find out and know that you're being exploited and being tokenized. Her book, In Bibi's Kitchen, comes out this year in October and features recipes and stories of grandmothers from eight African countries that touch the Indian Ocean. The intention behind it was to talk about recipes from the perspective of these grandmothers who are oftentimes the backbone of these countries and families. And we also give you advice on your questions about food and everything just in general. In general, like if you have questions about dinosaurs or aliens. I'm hoping for the dinosaur questions. But first, here's Hawa. A while ago, I got into this mode of watching Bon Appetit Test Kitchen videos because I was like, okay, let me write an essay about this because I have feelings and, you know, I wanted to see kind of the breadth of what they were doing. And I saw your videos. This is my first day at the Test Kitchen. I'm here to share my family's favorite recipe, coconut chicken yogurt from the wonderful country of Somalia, my home country. I thought they were so wonderful. And there were so many comments on the videos where people were like, please bring her back. Please make her full time. All of this stuff. The fact that you point out like you're in the cast picture for the test kitchen (laughs) after like what, like three or four videos and then you cut it off. And but but you're still kind of there as just this body, you know, considering your work to bring East African cuisines like, you know, get that representation out there. It feels like a spectrum between exploitation and representation. Right. I guess what is the difference between those two in your experience? Oh, I think representation would be giving someone access and allowing them to build on the access. Right. So giving someone some equity in a space, exploiting someone to me feels like filling a void to be performative. Um, more than it is to this is tough because like the way I want to say it is not coming out but it to me it's much more of doing it because you have to and not because you want to right so tokenizing someone you know we have one of that here um and that's to me what it, it felt very exploitive to me in in regards to you know I I think that there are brilliant black chefs that can make food from American culture, right? I, that's not a space I was willing to take up. It just would be unfair. Um, and, you know, what we later found out was that they were, they weren't a group that was willing to, they weren't willing to expand. One was enough, right? And you, I think if you're paying attention, you quickly find out and, and know that you're being exploited and being tokenized. Yeah, no. Um, it's something I struggle with a lot too, actually. You know, it's it's nice to be picked in a sense, right? And it really hurts to realize like why you're being picked. And I know that your desire to bring the cuisines that you love like into the spotlight are very, you know, intentional and very like of service to the community. And I can probably I mean, I can sense that it's really hurtful to see that kind of turned into something so shallow yeah and I I thought it was really weird too to like 
to prop me up on Black History Month, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, for videos that I filmed in October, I was like, it, it's it's odd, and I think it's disrespectful even to the audience, and it undermines the intelligence of the people that are tuning in, you know? And it's really manipulative, if I'm being mm-hmm. honest, you know, to say, like, we've withheld content from this woman since last September when we introduced her, but we'll give you a little bit this February because uh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, (laughs) the hard part about this line, the spectrum that I talk about with Hawa is, you know, you get so excited when you're picked for something, you know, like when your story pitch gets accepted or you are nominated for an award or you get put on a committee or something. Right. Like or you you get name dropped by somebody it can feel really nice to be picked and to be honored in that way. But like the, 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 the razor sharp other side of this coin, just imagine a coin with like razors taped to it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> it's like, you know, why am I being picked? When you start right. asking that question, um, it can get really sad and dangerous. So whenever I think of like diversity in food media, uh, I always think of, and I guess I guess restaurants as well. I always think of Tunde Way, uh, this Nigerian chef who, you know, I guess people see him as a, a leader in thought when it comes to power dynamics. Yeah, no, they uh, call him a provocateur. A, provo- a provocateur of sorts. Yeah, that's become the the go to phrase for him. And it's interesting because what Tunde is asking is essentially what powerful powerful people. Uh, are willing to give up to increase diversity, right? It's a conversation about diversity, and often Tende's like, okay, well, great. Um, you're the white business owner. Um, you want more brown people represented in your business? Why don't you step down and let brown people run it? Yeah, no, I think about how he, for instance, right, in a recent James Beard Foundation webinar, because that's how we exist now, via webinar, Um <laughs> He asks, he confronts, you know, the the leader, the director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, John T. Edge, and tells him to resign. And he just says it several times. Like, if Fla- you're serious about equity, uh, you should resign as a white man leading an organization that is all about food that has a lot to do with black Southerners and what they've contributed. And that was so, it seems so kind of like out of bounds, you know. And he yeah. like... He started this like kind of movement now um, where people are asking John T to to resign. Um, but there's a lot of resistance to it. And it brings it's a great illustration, I think, of how if you really care about equity, like it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be pretty or pleasant or easy. Going back to 10 Day, it's great that you have people that have to come out and say these things and they but he also gets pigeonholed as this um you know, if you want someone to come in and really challenge your thought, you're going to get this black man to come do that. And I don't know. I feel like that's kind of unfair. No, I mean, it's emotionally exhausting. Right. You know, it is work and it's hard. The flip side, too, is like you get a lot of angry emails or you get yelled at online or people start to not invite you to things because you're saying things that they don't like. Um, It's it's work to do that. And, you know, that's, I think, kind of how you bust out of the representation politics part of it, too, is like you representation is pretty easy, you know. Yeah. Um, and 
it's not really giving up anything. Yeah. And then it also ties into like tying this back into uh, African restaurants in the Bay Area. And so like, I'm sure you've noticed this too, but every time a chef opens an African restaurant or we write about one or they do some expansion and they, they get into the news, they have this added responsibility where if you talk to them about it, they're like, I want to do this to you know, introduce people to my culture. I want to do this to, you know, expand how people see African food. And I feel like it's similar to like what, you know, writers have to do in the media, I suppose. Yeah, no, I mean, that was the whole point of Hawa being at Bon Appetit, right? That's it. So I wanted to talk broadly about like the state of African cuisines in American food media, which I think we th- we have this illusion that American food media kind of decides like what's great, what's trendy, right? What's good and desirable. Um, but I get the sense, you know, and I think of many people, once you really think about it, it is really provincial. Um, it has a very limited scope of what it considers to be important. And I'd love to hear you describe just like the state of of the status of African cuisines in this kind of environment? Well, I think that American audience beyond Ethiopian food would be a little bit like, what is African food? Isn't Ethiopian <laughs> food African food? Um, but, you know, the way that I like to talk about it is that, first of all, Africa is a continent, right? So when you're talking about cuisines from a landlocked country like Lesotho, you're not talking about foods from Somalia, which is, you know, the longest inland coast in all of Africa, right? And so it's it's vast, it's plantains, it's rice, it's cassava, it's pop, it is, you know, it's ugali, which is similar to pop, it's pasta, it's, it's very, oftentimes a lot of these countries is reflective of their colonizers' food, you know? Um, so when I, when I, when I talk about our food and my country's food ways, you know, I talk about I talk about bris, which is Somali rice that's similar to, you know, rice from Tanzania or from India because we're along the Indian Ocean. Um, you know, I talk about cinnamon, dates, cardamom, uh, turmeric. I talk about shah, which is like chai. You know, I talk about the similarities of food from just across the ocean. Um, and, you know, I, I think my intentions and what I'm trying to do even with the cookbook is to really just tie a thread through food for people to help them to understand that not are we all, ve- not only are we all very different, the foods that we are trying to introduce to the West are oftentimes at tables just with different ingredients. You know, I, I'm, I'm not asking someone to make a food that they've never heard of. I'm asking you to make rice, but my way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would, I'd say that there's a long way to go in terms of media and African foods. Um, I think that the first step that is being taken is giving African people access to writing books from their perspective and about their cultures um, and telling their own stories. You know, I've seen Yawande at the Times doing the 10 essentials is, I mean, to, to watch that and to see ingredients that people are familiar with or to see Yawande writing about palm oil, you know, which has such a bad rep from people who know nothing about it. 
Um, so I, I think what people are doing is, first of all, dismantling the narrative that this food is far and difficult and whatever else, and then making it accessible. And then having the hard conversations that Africa is not a country. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, it's like everyone in America knows what a banana is, right? And so it's it intellectually, it can't be that hard to, to think like, oh, yeah, banana plus rice could be good. You know? Um, but there's so much. Or just the idea of sweet and savory. Right. We know this. Yeah. I, I'm so thankful for the younger generation because there is nothing that they're unlearning. They're just learning as they go and they're they're willing to adjust very quickly. And, you know, and they're cooking a lot more than, say, probably we did. I, I'm 34. I don't know how old you are. But growing up in America, I, I spent a good amount of time eating at Taco Bell or Taco Time growing <laughs> up in Seattle. So, so like one thing that I realized is that I didn't know nearly as much about the African food scene anywhere, honestly. I just didn't know as much about African food as I thought I did until I moved out to the Bay Area a couple of years ago. That's not even to say that the Bay Area has just this wide expanse of African restaurants, but I think like over the years, since at least 2016, maybe 2017, you've seen it kind of grow. You know, because like when I first moved here, there were neighborhood spots like, uh, you know, a couple of Eritrean places that you could find, Ethiopian places that you could find. And then, you know, like between 2018 and 2019, San Francisco got like its first Nigerian restaurant of sorts in Echo Kitchen. Um, there was this North African restaurant and theater spot that opened in the city called Berber. But then you can come into the East Bay. And you would also see places like Damol in Oakland that would take, you know, Sen Senegalese food and Brazilian food and Argentinian food and mix them together. And it's just all of the sudden you had this explosion of uh, of flavors, basically, these businesses that could all coexist and uh, and live well together. And I learned I think I learned more about African food in the last couple of years than I have my, my whole life. I would imagine it's really interesting because you're from Louisiana where, you know, I think the legacy of African food through the descendants of enslaved people is so ever present in like right. so much of the culture. Yeah. Um, and so like you've been kind of encountering it through that lineage and through the diaspora. So it must have been really, you know, different and fresh to experience like African food from immigrants. You know, it's a really good point about Louisiana. So I, I always felt like African food that I would have there was made by a, an older generation, I guess you could say. Like I couldn't name a, an African chef down there who was below 50 years old kind of thing. Not to say that that's old, but just, you know, they're a seasoned cook cooking for people professionally. But then Coming out here, there are a handful of like first time restaurateurs. Um, you know, the guy who runs Dommel in Oakland isn't even really a chef himself. Like he has like a, you know, I think he had like a catering business or something. And then you go to Echo Kitchen in San Francisco that does amazing food. But even that chef owner was just recreating things from that her family would make, like, uh, I guess you could say, like, rooted in her childhood. She was recreating these flavors that she enjoyed so much. It's it's a fun recreation because you're taking the things that you loved when you were younger and making them again, which means you're taking the highlights 
and amplifying them. So, you know, if it's a dish that has like coconut milk that you remember when you were younger, you're going to find ways to kind of replicate that and also increase it, you know, if you're increasing like the sweetness or the spiciness. And I think you're going to start seeing more of that as younger restaurateurs open these African businesses out here, that they're recreating stuff from their childhood that they remember that they may not have actually cooked. And we're going to get this new wave of really fun flavors. Is that, you know, does that make any sense? Yeah. No, it seems like African cuisines in the Bay Area are going they're undergoing like a really interesting transition period. Right. Um, I can think of like in Saro, Ethiopian in Oakland, for instance, they have Ethiopian nachos on the menu. Yeah. Yeah. That's just super tasty. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like one of my last pre pandemic meals was there. Um, and yeah, like that's like totally different and also really delicious. Yeah. I mean, who knows what it's going to look like after this pandemic? Who knows what real estate prices are going to be? Who knows what housing is going to look like, right? Like, there's no guarantee that people are going to be able to cram into luxury condos like they do now. But before the pandemic, um, you could see property owners start to be more open to having an African business, you know, take over their building. Like, in Oakland, there was going to be... um, there's going to be this kind of marketplace that was going to blend together, you know, Afro-Caribbean flavors and Malaysian flavors and Persian flavors. And I, I want to say like four or five years ago, you wouldn't have seen that. Like, I don't think a property owner would have taken a chance on a business like that. But there's something happening now where they're like, oh, OK, I think this can work. And that's really I mean, it's pleasant to see, you know. Yeah. And I would hope like what Hawa says, right, that this is helping. And like, I think your reporting has helped as well, like helping people who aren't familiar really understand that there are differences, that there are many cultures within this <laughs> right. gigantic continent that is bigger yeah. than North America, <laughs> yeah. um, that there's a lot going on there that really has been exploited in the past. Um, yeah. And people haven't been able to kind of determine the terms in which like people are engaging with them. And so like, I hope that this is a step towards that. Like something that's a bit deeper. Right. Like people shouldn't be scared off from trying African food. If anything, if you're a person who can, who likes to multitask, who even if you have like a short attention span, if you like a lot of things happening at once, African food is such a great avenue for you to take because everything is so different. The the flavors are so nuanced and um, you can explore. Yeah. You know, explore maybe. Just don't conquer. Do not conquer. (laughs) Definitely don't gentrify, please. (laughs) We got to give these warning labels at the end of this. Don't conquer. Don't gentrify. Just, you know, eat the food. Be respectful. Yeah, chill out. (laughs) Take off your shoes before you walk in the house. You know how it goes. You mentioned that you came to Seattle when you were, what, seven? Yeah. Grade school? Mm -hmm. That must have been so shocking just to encounter the... The food of the U.S. alone, like what? What did you eat? Like Taco Bell? You know, it's a favorite of immigrants, so I totally get that. Um, I mean, I ate a lot of hot dogs. I loved hot links. I thought <laughs> this thing with this rubbery skin that is spicy—it was just so good. Um, I ate a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I ate a lot of cereal, cinnamon crunch toast, um, Captain Crunch. You know, and pizza, 
I just, I, I ate foods that were just so different, you know, that for me that were so different. And then I think as I got older, a lot of the people I, I grew up with were Ethiopian. So I started to eat more Ethiopian food around middle school, um, which till today is like a staple, even in my own home. I've, my pantry is full of shuro and goman and, you know, berbere. And so I, I probably make more Ethiopian food than I make uh, American food or even Somali food. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Then it's it must have been like so because that's the thing, right? With immigrants, like you have to adjust. You have to learn and eat foods that are totally different from your experience. And it must be so strange to see like you know, Native Americans, right, people who were born here and grew up American, be so hesitant to embrace food that they don't understand because you had to do it and you really didn't have that much choice. Yeah. I mean, I think my thought was always that I'm in someone else's country. And so, you know, you do whatever it takes to survive. And so I couldn't even imagine what it would be like for an American, say, in a place like Somalia. Um, you know, would, would they adjust or would they just have bread and tea? Like, I, I don't know, you know, <laughs> but I know that if I wasn't eating at school, I wasn't going to eat when I got home because there wasn't food. So, you know, I was like, I was very strategic in the way that I ate and what I consumed. You know, I spent a lot of time eating bread, eating heavy foods so that I wouldn't be hungry at night. I, I grew up with a group of refugees and oftentimes it was like, you take care of yourself. So, you know, for me, adjusting, assimilating wasn't hard at all because you don't really have a choice when you come here. You're automatically made to feel like what you bring isn't good, right? Whether it's the way you smell from home, um, the hijab you have on, your accent. It's not a society that is, it's not inclusive. And it's not welcoming, frankly, you know, especially for, I, I feel sad for parents who come here with children. I can't even imagine what my mother's experience must have been like going to Oslo and then having to advocate for her children when she herself doesn't know the language, the culture, um, the economy of a country. But then here you are, a new person having to advocate for some small children and make a way, you know, where for me, I was just like, I was alone. I was, I was young. I was alone. And when you're a little kid, you're, you adapt a little bit quicker, you know? Yeah, no, it's interesting because it's, you know, when, when someone tries a new food or like, you know, someone can talk about, you know, French food or Somali food or Vietnamese food as a foodie, right? Like they're seen as worldly or cultured. And like that's a behavior that is really familiar to you that would not necessarily be spun that way, you know, of just like learning new foods. It it doesn't come from this sort of like dilettantish desire. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's so um stark when you apply it to a different context of like, oh yeah, like we kind of we read this behavior in different ways depending on, you know, who's doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's I find this place so fascinating. I really do. I really, really do. You know, I if today I was told I need to pack my bags and go, I would go graciously. You know, because I, I have no attachments here. I have, I have no desire to be in a place where I'm so often made to to feel other. 
in a space where I so often don't even have the information I need just to, 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 to thrive and where systems are built to oppress me, you know, at 34, at like, no matter how hard you work, it's for, I have, I honestly, I have no interest in knowing American cuisine. I spent a great deal cooking food that is not American. I studying food that is not American, you know, diving deeper into myself and my culture and East African foods and, you know, South African foods and traveling even there. I, I, I've stopped even traveling here, you know, and then to be able to speak another language, it's too much for one person. It's too much for us. And then our counterparts only have to know one language, one story, one history, one cuisine. I'm like, I don't want to discuss Brussels sprouts. It's so frustrating. <laughs> it drives you to drink. God, in this economy, right? Just like it's 2020 now. Right, right. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We will be right back after the break. This is Soleil Ho, and we're back with Hawa Hassan, the CEO of Basba Somali Foods and a cookbook author. I feel like we need to get to talking about your book, too, because I want to hear all about it. Tell the listeners the gist of what In Bibi's Kitchen is. So In Bibi's Kitchen is a cookbook from eight African countries that touch the Indian Ocean from the perspective of grandmothers, some in the U.S. and some on the continent. The countries that are featured in it are Somalia, Eritrea, Tanzania, Kenya, Mozambique, Madagascar, Comoros, and South Africa. And the intention behind it was to talk about how similar these foods were, to examine the history of these countries, and to talk about recipes from the perspective of these grandmothers who are oftentimes, you know, the backbone of these countries and families. How did you find them? Like, how did you encounter them? Were they people that you just knew in your life before through your network? Yeah, some were. Um, like, I lived in Cape Town in 2009. So our grandmother from there was my friend Faith's auntie. Um, there is a, a princess baby named Ma Vicky, who lives in Yonkers, who happens, her daughter happens to live in Brooklyn, who I know from a group of Tanzanian friends. So a lot of it was just community, um, friendships that I've built over the years and being able to just reach out to people and say, hey, I'm looking for a grandmother. And, you know, and then some were from people I just met. Um, but mostly everybody was when I told people in my community about this project that I was trying to bring to life, they were also really excited to have something that they wanted to read come to life. So everybody was super eager to help. I think it's like probably the one book that has like 30 people being thanked. <laughs> it, it was really oh, a village. Awesome. It took a village to make it happen. What was it like to approach them? Were they like the grandmothers? Were they excited? Were they surprised? Were they um, expecting you? <laughs> I, I think most of them were excited. What I found out about doing this book is so oftentimes we don't speak to the gatekeepers of our cultures. And they they just they were so excited. They wouldn't stop talking, you know, Um and I, I get so much pleasure being in the kitchen with women who are older than me and learning from them and um, being taught by them. And so it, it was, for me, it was humbling because 
these are the people I want to spend time with. You know, these are the these are the folks I want to get all of the the information from. And so to have them also receive me with open arms was was such a joy, you know, and and their amount the amount of grace and generosity they have and the lack of Fs they give, you know, <laughs> these are people who are living unapologetically across the world. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, like asking my grandmother for recipes is like always like such a trip because she just doesn't care. <laughs> like if I know exactly what she's trying to do, she's just like, just watch. Um, that that sense of like maternal authority is so fun and just like really empowering to be around, I think. Yeah, no, there was a lot of, it was funny. We just let them do their own thing and then we just recorded. And then afterwards we ended up getting, um, just measuring from the video. <laughs> yeah, right. Because they, they're not going to give you like tablespoons or grams or no. anything like that. No, there there was none of that. That's not how they, they work in the kitchen. So there was no direction like that. But it was also, it was wonderful to watch. You know, it's like watching a magician in the kitchen, someone making a, a dish that they've made hundreds of times. It's, it's rewarding to say the least to watch. So I'm kind of curious about the universality of the of the like the bodily measurement thing or like even the experience of like asking grandparents about how they cook. Like, have you ever cooked with your grandparents? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, going back to like having to use the ladders to stand up to be able to. No, yeah, cute. Yeah, to be able to do stuff with them, whether it's like, you know, my grandmother showed me at an early, early age how to clean chitlins, which Oh yeah, yeah. So like you know this. For anyone that knows anything about pig intestines, cleaning them damn things out to eat is a is a pain. But I just remember often that they would describe measurement amounts by talking about like their hands, like a fistful of peppers or something like that. But if you're, you know, talking to my grandmother who has tiny hands, that's one thing. If you're talking to my grandfather who had the hand of like a catcher's mitt, that's something else. So as you get older, you have to kind of like break these measurements down on your own to figure out what's what works. And I don't know, maybe that's the exploration of cooking. But yeah, I used to get a lot of details from my grandparents that uh, that I realized at the moment did not make a lot of sense. You know, it reminds me of this article or this recipe article that Samin Nosrat wrote for the New York Times cooking uh, section about Pyeongchan Tofu House. Mm-hmm. And it was all about the concept of sonmat. In Korean, it means like the taste of one's hands or like the taste of mother's hands. Um, like you get really like complimented on the sonmat of your food because it tastes like this comes from you, you know, directly. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really like that's the thing that's missing sometimes is like you want that. And it's so hard to quantify. It's like it is like I think a very integral part of what we think of as soul cooking. It's like soul yeah. food. Yeah. Like even for you, Soleil, like thinking about what your grandmother made, you have the memory of some of the things that she used to cook. And this goes all the way back to us talking about Echo Kitchen and those young African chefs who are recreating things that they remember when they were younger. Um, they may not remember exactly how they were made then, but they remember their favorite parts of it. And maybe those future dishes that you make, that they make, are you know going to be equally great. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, like, that's why I'm so interested in Howa's book, too, because it captures that very sentiment of just, like, 
okay, we take our grandmothers for granted often, yeah. right? Yeah. And like the expertise that they carry. Um, so to actually formalize, not formalize, but like to actually commemorate that expertise in a book feels really significant, you know? Yeah, I love it. I guess the last thing then would just be um, tell our listeners like where they can find your work, uh, what they should look for, and yeah, where they can find you. I would first say order our condiments from at bestbestsauce.com. Um, follow our social media channels and, you know, be open to cooking foods from other places. You might be, you might be pleasantly surprised. All right, now we're going to transition to, you know, like a weird segment. Maybe a suspicious segment. Uh, maybe it's your least favorite or your most favorite. I don't know. It is a chameleon. It's Dear Spicy. It's our advice segment. So if you have a question for us about life or love or food or your dog or your mom or whatever, um, send them to extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. This week, a listener named Naomi Yoshiko sent a voice memo. As people who write about food and love restaurants, how do you feel about covering reopenings? Although the state and mayor have technically allowed restaurants to reopen for dine-in service at the time of recording, there's still undoubtedly a risk to both yourself and the employees. How do you balance your want to support restaurants while also keeping in mind the fact that COVID cases continue to be on the rise um, in the Bay Area, California, world and country at large? Man, this is a big question because like this week, several restaurant critics came out with stories or like articles about how they're not going to restaurants and why they're not going to restaurants. Like uh, Ryan Sutton at Eater, Tejal Rao. Um, I feel like we have to address it. I haven't really because it's pretty obvious to me. <laughs> and like, how do you how do you write like we failed and everyone needs to be paid to stay home like over and over and over again? You know, I don't know. It's frustrating. Yeah, that's really good points. You, you know, I, I actually I'm going to bring it to a personal experience. I went to uh, I was in Petaluma recently. And I ended up going to like uh, a couple of bars and a beer garden. And, you know, mind you, like these places aren't actively welcoming customers in San Francisco and Oakland, but uh, in Petaluma, they were packed. Obviously, this was partly for work. And I am a panicky person right now during this pandemic. I'm not even going to lie to you. Like the idea of like brushing shoulders with someone on the street would make me want to run home and change clothes. Like I, I'm, I'm doing my best to keep distance, but I've never seen so many people in one space just completely content on being around each other during this pandemic without masks on. And I understand that people really miss the social element of going out, but what this illness can do, and maybe so it's us covering it so much and talking to people who have either had it or have it or have recovered from it, I just don't feel comfortable yet. I'll put it like that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's creepy, right? Um, it, it makes you feel completely like an alien, I think. Where, yeah. Like, I always wonder, do these people know something that I don't? That's a really good way to think of it. Or if you ignore something hard enough, it won't affect you. Maybe right. that's Maybe that's what they know. At the, at the same time, I think it's really easy to get caught up in the like, oh, he's not wearing a mask or like these these like young people are out at the bar or whatever. Right. Or these yeah. people are protesting when this is all these are all symptoms. Right. Of this like greater 
miscalculation or not even miscalculation. That sounds like that's that's avoiding placing blame, but it's more just like this total failure, right, on the level of our infrastructure, <laughs> our yeah. governments, yeah. Um, federally to like acknowledge this, um, right, right, and really get ahead of it because we had time. Now, all of this goes to say. There still are ways to go out and support, you know, your favorite businesses. Like you can still order cocktails from places. You can still, um, you know, go do takeout. Like just because you're not going to these places doesn't mean that you're not visiting them to see how the quality is or just to find out what's going on. There's still ways to do that. It just right. has this added layer of nervous flop sweat that we didn't have before. Yeah, I'm not in a hurry to go back. Um because, you know, as the as the question asker alludes to, right, like there's risk, there's risk to us and also risk to other people, the people who have to serve us right. and, you know, work and like interface with us. That part is, I mean, I wrote about this at the beginning, like it feels like a million years ago, right, at the beginning of the pandemic where I would, I like I would just be so, it would be awful to to know that I was the one who infected somebody, you know. Oh my god, yeah. As like a, a asymptomatic carrier, um, I just like don't want that risk. And also, like restaurant workers, largely right, don't have that cushion. And especially now, they really don't have that cushion, right, to right. take care of themselves if a medical emergency happens, like to take care of their families or whatever. It would just be a disaster. I mean, the very fact that we're having conversations about how to support restaurants in this time means that. A lot of things that were meant to, to help us as people and like people of this country have failed and like have elapsed utterly. Um, it shouldn't be up to us to, to support restaurants or save right. them or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that shouldn't be our responsibility. I think that's why like all these little discussions about people wearing masks or not wearing masks or like, um, do you get takeout, do you get delivery, whatever, like they feel like distractions to this greater thing, which is a very... You know, it didn't have to be this way. So Naomi also asked a second question. What has been the most interesting or surprising story that you've heard during COVID? It can be both restaurant related or non-restaurant related. I think for me, I don't know. My I'm like, my brain is so broken. Like, I just think in memes now, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking about my favorite, like, pandemic memes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the ones about, like, the kind of, like, mm, eco-fascist ones about like nature is like coming back into balance or like nature's returning you know like people will post <laughs> yeah. pictures of like ducks right. on a street you know right, <laughs> right. Like, oh nature is rebalancing um, <laughs> or dolphins where they definitely were <laughs> weren't normally yeah no, those memes are so great <laughs> i think the fact of just being able to laugh at this has been really my saving kind of it's been a balm for me I will say this. I did gripe about going to Petaluma. This isn't so much a story. But I did gripe <laughs> I did gripe about like, you know, all those young kids that were out there with no mask on. But I will say occasionally it is refreshing to see that to some people the world is still going on. People are still laughing, people are still happy and uh that was kind of nice. I mean it's freaky though, right? Because like, you you know that when people laugh, they're spreading more particulate matter into the yeah, air. Yeah, no, I was trying to be positive. Look what you've done. <laughs> <laughs> I was 
He's trying to be positive. I'm like freaking out. <laughs> now I'm losing it. You know what? You know what? Forget it. Forget it. Forget what I said. Forget what I said. Oh, laughter <laughs> oh is evil. God. Thank you, Naomi. That was really, really thoughtful questions. And I'm sorry to stink it up with our terror. <laughs> so that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to Hawa Hassan for being in conversation with me. You can read the transcript of our full interview at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember, people, send us any questions or voice memos or ravens with notes attached to their legs. Do not that send you, nudes. Don't please. send. Yeah, yeah. Don't send nudes. Don't send nudes to Soleil. I guess we should just say that. Uh, <laughs> you may have. You're going to get canceled. You're going to get canceled so hard. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's do oh it. Oh, my God. Uh, all right. I'm going to start this again. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you have about food, life, or anything else that you're obsessed with for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleho, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.